there's that great scene in the musical which the fiddler is on top of the roof. And Topol says that life is like, tradition is like a fiddler on the roof. And that was a show that my mom made me watch all the time when I was a little kid, Fiddler on the Roof. But his point was that being engrossed with tradition, it's kind of like being a fiddler on the roof. If you have someone that really knows how to play the fiddle, notice I didn't say violin, but the fiddle, they're going to fall off the roof because you really get moving back and forth. And tradition is vacillating. And if you're not careful, you can fall from your point of tradition. One of the things that people sometimes ask as we think about worship in the church is, is a cappella singing in the church just a tradition? Is the only reason we sing without instrument in our worship service simply because it is a tradition? Now, some of you have heard me talk about this before. But it's something we revisit from time to time because it's important as we have our young people growing up in the church, as we sometimes encounter uh, folks that are new to Christianity, as we sometimes have uh, visitors who are not accustomed to worshiping with us, they want to know, well, why is it that you don't, why is it that you worship without instruments? And so that's what we want to think about this morning. Last week, we talked about, yeah, everyone's uh, cell phone's going off with the emergencies, right? Okay. Last week we talked about the Lord's Supper and why we do things the way we do in the Lord's Supper. And this morning it's important for us to think about our singing in worship and why do we sing the way that we do. So what we want to do this morning is we want to uh, consider two key passages, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19 following and Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 following. And as we look at these passages, we want to do a couple of things. Uh, one of those is we want to see if we can get a grasp of what's happening with these passages by making a couple observations. And then we want to examine both of these passages. And then we want to consider the issues of authority, trust, and repentance. And as we do this, all of this is in the back of the mind that we want to worship our God the way he wants us to worship him. So let's begin by making some observations about these passages. Let's read Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse, let's start in verse 18, 19, 20. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So Paul says here that we need to sing and we need to speak to one another. And so that's what we're doing with our singing. But what does that all mean? Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So he spells out this speaking as being a time in which we are teaching and admonishing one another. 
we have something that we are doing together. Is it just a tradition? Or is there a purpose for our singing and what we do and the way we do it? Consider this quote from Eric Werner in the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. Uh, Dr. Werner says, Paul, however, denounced their instruments, speaking of Jewish worship or pagan worship, usage on account of their role in mystery cults and thus reflected the view of the Orthodox Pharisees. Paul himself, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, shared fully these views in all his exhortations. He speaks only of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So Dr. Werner says, look, when you look at what Paul is saying here, he is comparing Christian worship with the pagan worship of the society in which they occurred. And what's interesting about Dr. Werner is Dr. Werner is not a member of the Church of Christ. In fact, Dr. Werner wouldn't consider himself a Christian at all. Dr. Werner is a Jewish scholar. Uh, he's taught at the uh, uh, Hebrew University in New York uh, for a number of years. Uh, and then he's taught at Tel Aviv University in Tel Aviv, Israel for a number of years. He's considered an expert on ancient Jewish and Christian worship. But he's speaking not from the perspective of I have to defend the tradition of a particular church, but from someone who has studied the way worship was done in the first century, both in Jewish and Christian communities, and compared those things. He has no dog in the fight, as the phrase goes. What's interesting is you read Ephesians 5.19 from the contemporary English version. Uh, it says, when you meet together, sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, as you praise the Lord with, with all your heart. And what's interesting here is that the contemporary English version uh, articulates the fact that this is when you meet together. It's the idea of the church coming together and saying and we'll say why in here in a few, a few minutes. Finally, John Price, a number of years ago, wrote a book. He's the pastor of Grace Baptist Church. Uh, he wrote a book on light and new worship as a Baptist minister. He said, after doing my study on music in the church, I came to the conclusion that the use of instrumental music or musical instrument was not to be a part of the New Testament worship. It was at that time that my church made the change to a cappella singing. So here is someone from outside the Church of Christ family uh, saying, as I study the scripture, I, I see there's no place of this in the New Testament. There's no place for instrumental music in the early church. So what does this mean? As we look at the text of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19 following, uh, what do we know? The, the reason I, I included the quote from the community, uh, uh, contemporary English version is because there are some folks that say, well, maybe th this passage isn't really talking about worship. This passage isn't really talking about the church being together. Uh, and, and therefore, this is something else. This is talking about what you do individually. Or maybe this is even talking about uh, what you do in your families. Well, is that really the message here? Uh, consider the broader context of Ephesians. Paul uses the imagery of the, of the body. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11, 22. And he really goes in to talk about how we are a body. We're one body. He continues the idea of one body in chapter 3 and verse 6. Uh, the one body is the emphasis of Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, and then he comes down in verse 17, especially verse 25, and he contrasts living in this community with living in a former state. And when we're talking about the church in Ephesus, or maybe even some of the churches around or communities around Ephesus, we're talking about a culture and society built around Greek paganism. 
And so he's contrasting that way of life, those sorts of assemblies, with what was going on in the church. In chapter 5 and verse 3, he really contrasts uh, the Christian community with the word, world. Look at Ephesians 5 in verse 3. He says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is improper, as is proper among the saints. And he's really going to draw out this contest text. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Look at verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak about the things which are done by them in secret. Verse 15. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise men. And so he's really starting to draw out the context of what was going on in the world the pagan world around where these Christians were living. And he says it needs to be different. Notice the emphasis of verse 7 and 8. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of the light. Do you notice the, plur the plurality that's used in all these phrases? Them, you in the plural form in the Greek uh, in this text. Uh, do not be partakers with them. He's comparing and contrasting the practices of the pagan world with what it was to be in the Christian community. Now, you and I don't think about things in these ways, but in the ancient Greeks, they did. Every union, every guild, every city, every occupation, and even most families had their patron god. And every time those assemblies would meet, or that guild, those guilds would meet, any time there was a community festival, they would always behave in a way as, in to, as to engage the deity that was their patron deity. And they would even set out wine and, and food uh, for that deity as if that deity was joining them in that meal. That's why Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He's drawing a contrast. This is what they do in their assemblies. This is what they do when they get together. It's supposed to be different with you. You be filled with the Spirit. That's really what he's saying here. And the question is, well, how does a Christian become filled with the Spirit in this text? You have to ask yourself the question, what would the broader context prevent Paul, or why would it prevent Paul from discussing worship? If this isn't talking about worship, what is it talking about? He deals directly with the interaction between brethren. Wouldn't the assembly be a key time of, of interaction? He talks about this is how you ought to talk to one another. This is how you ought to communicate with one another. This is how you ought to treat one another uh, with love, as we look in this context more closely. Wouldn't the assembly be a, a, a time of interaction? Chapter 5 is the contrast between pagan community and the Christian world. And again, that key element of the pagan world involved drunken worship of the patron deity of whatever group was, was meeting. So the contract seems to fit. If it is impossible for Paul to have worship in mind in Ephesians 5.19, what would the context be? How would it fit the context? So what about the immediate context? Let's look again at verse 20 following. 
Paul says, first of all, speak to one another. This is something that we do with each other. Now, we really need to drive this point home a little bit because sometimes you come into assembly and think, well, why should I say? My kids tell me all the time, Dad, please don't sing, even though I know that I have a very awesome voice. Uh, they, they don't seem to agree. Uh, but when we come into the worship assembly, we have a command to speak to one another, to sing. And, and it's when we look at our little kids in our worship service, some are better than singing, at singing than others. Right? You can always hear Adeline singing. Right? Adeline is always singing. Uh, but sometimes when we bring up our little ones, they, why do I need to sing? Well, because God wants you to sing in worship. You have a command to sing in worship. And it doesn't say, say you have to sing good. You don't have to sing like Elvis. Uh, you don't have to sing whoever your favorite artist is. You don't have to sing like that person. Uh, he just says sing. Speak to one another. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. There's two words that are used there. Singing uh, comes from the Greek word from which we get the word ode. You go back and think about your Renaissance, Middle Age poets that would always say ode to an oak tree or whatever. That word really means song. But here it's being used in the verb sense of, of sing. And then it says make melody. Where are you supposed to make your melody in the context of this verse? In your heart. In your heart. So we're singing and we're making the melody in our heart. Now, think back to some of the other things that you and I have studied in recent days. Uh, we can always go back to John chapter 4, where Jesus tells the woman at the well, God is spirit and those that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So we're worshiping in spirit. It's a spiritual worship that we do. When you think back to what we've been studying in our uh, adult Bible class on Wednesday nights, looking at the, the book of Hebrews, and the Hebrew writer goes to great lengths to say, look, all the physical aspects of worship that took place in the tabernacle and the temple, all those things were just a shadow of the things to come, but the real worship, the real aspect of, of Christianity is in heaven. All this Physical stuff is being done away with. It was just there to be a shadow of what was to come. But when we're singing with our heart, I'm not asking a priest or somebody else to take some animal and sacrifice it on my behalf or to carry out some worship for me. I am singing and praising God myself. And so we have these two aspects of worship, especially in, in Ephesians chapter 5, where I'm speaking to one another. And then when you plug in Colossians, Paul says in Colossians, teach and admonish one another. When I am singing, I am serving the purpose of teaching the other folks that are there and admonishing the other folks that are there. The word admonish means to strongly urge or strongly warn or encourage, but really the emphasis is on urging. And so when we sing together, we are doing that with one another. We are teaching and admonishing and speaking to each other. The form that this takes in the Greek is the form of a pronoun, which means you are doing it to each other at the same time. 
it's a reflexive pronoun or a reciprocal pronoun. There's a number of Greek grammars that we could go to, to to prove this or show this. Daniel Wallace, in his Greek grammar, Greek grammar beyond the basics, points out here's a rare instance, talking specifically of these two passages, here's a rare instance of the reflexive pronoun used like a reciprocal pronoun. It's used to indicate the interchange between two or more groups. Uh, Dana Antley, uh, in their grammar, say very much the same thing. When a plural subject, subject is represented as affected by interchange of the action signified by the verb, it's called a reciprocal uh, construction. And he gives uh, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 as examples of that. Robertson in his grammar says much the same thing. This is in harmony with the ancient Greek idiom. The papyrus shows the same blending, thus we may know. This brings out the mutual relations involved, and he quotes these two passages as examples of that. So here's the thing. We can engage in lots of things. We can even engage in lots of things with other people around. But it doesn't mean that we are doing it with each other. And you think about these runners on a track. They're all engaged in running, but they're not interacting with each other, even though they're at the same place in the same time. Instead, what you have is you have a conversation. You have people engaging with one another. What they are doing is impacting each other. And when Paul says teach and admonish one another, saying to one another, he's using pronouns which indicate this is something that we are doing together, impacting each other. When we say we are encouraging each other, we are teaching each other. We are admonishing one another. As we look at Ephesians 5.19, the speak is modified with the phrase in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make a melody in your heart. So we speak, and the way that we are supposed to speak is in psalms. Many of the psalms were sung. Sometimes they were read. Hymns and spiritual songs. You know, sometimes there are churches that have debates over what types of songs they ought to sing. I like Devo songs. Oh, I don't like Devo songs. I like traditional hymns. Oh, I like these kinds of songs. The reality is, as we sing, we ought to have all of them. They all serve the same purpose in different ways. Now, I can be encouraged by a song that reminds me to call upon the Lord. And yet I can also be encouraged to do what I need to do by being told to throw out the lifeline. I can be warned by being reminded that troublesome times are here. So I don't need to fuss and fight and say, well, my preference is that we only sing Devo songs, or my preference is that we only sing traditional hymns, or my, my preference is, if I'm a Christian, I'm doing all of these things. And my focus isn't on my preference. My focus is on praising God, giving thanks to God. At the same time, I know I'm encouraging other Christians. teaching them and admonishing them. And that's what Paul says God wants us to do. The speaking is done by plurality. It's everyone in the church doing it, not just one rascal or one individual. I guess I shouldn't call a brother a rascal. But uh, it's not being done by just one individual or any uh, a small group of individuals, but it's something that we're all doing together as we admonish each other. So the question for us is, well, in what setting do you find a plurality of brethren? Notice Paul doesn't say in Ephesians chapter 5 or in Colossians chapter 3, it's a corporate worship service, 
or outside of the corporate worship village. Those are all things that we have, language that we have developed over the last two centuries uh, to impose our thoughts on things. He just says, when you come together, this is what you need to do. When you're together, this is what you need to do. So where do we find that? Anytime a group of Christian gathers, in small groups, you're having a small group Bible study, well, yeah, that would be Christians gathered together. And if they're singing in that setting, this is how they ought to sing. This is how they ought to worship. Well, what about in fellowship? Sometimes we get together uh, and do things just for fun, and maybe if you sing, this is how you need to do it. And, of course, in our large assemblies, when we gather together, that's going to be us in a few years, right? Okay? Large crowds. But in a large assembly, this is how you sing. So how do, how does Ephesians 5.19 fit Paul's, Paul's thoughts? And this is where we begin to think about our worship as a church and why we do things as a church. First of all, he uses the command, speak to one another and teach and admonish one another by psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's other places, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15, where Paul hints at the fact that the church sung together or sang together. Uh, at the end of the Lord's Supper, Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, they sang a hymn and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. And so there's not a command or an example of worship outside of these four passages in the New Testament. The only two passages that really delineate how we ought to do this are Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And so this is the command that we have. And it's somewhat specific in terms of saying and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. So we ask ourselves about the role of authority. It's interesting that in many places Jesus says, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And uh, he even says things like, uh, I don't even speak unless the Father gives me something to say or speak on my own initiative. I only speak as my Father has told me uh, to speak. Even the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will say or speak as he is told to speak. And so if that's Jesus, am I any better than Jesus? Am I any better than the Holy Spirit? 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23 tells the story of Saul, the king, and Saul is told to go and take care of the, uh, uh, the, the Moabites because of, of what they did to Israel as they were coming out of, out of Egypt, and he's supposed to go and, and completely destroy that nation, and he doesn't. Instead, he sets up a statue to himself as if to say, look how great I am. And here comes Samuel, and Samuel says, did you follow the command of God? And Saul says, yes, I did all that. Samuel says, and what's that bleeding of sheep that I hear? What is that sound of cattle that I'm hearing? Well, we save the best for God. We're, we're going to sacrifice that to God. We save the best. Oh, that's not what you were told to do. And in that passage, he says, the sin of rebellion is just as the sin of divination. God wants us to follow him with our whole heart and with complete faithfulness to him. God places a high standard on following his authority. If Jesus did and said exactly as the Father told him, are we to live by a lesser standard? How do we trust God? You know, a few weeks ago, we studied Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, and we talked about trusting in God and what it is to acknowledge God in all of your ways. Well, did God forget to tell us something about worship? 
Or can we trust him that he tells us to worship him the way he wants us to worship? Can we trust that if God wanted us to worship in a particular way, he would have told us? Yeah, I think I can trust God on that. Can we trust God to use the power of his gospel to save? If I'm speaking his word, teaching his word, is that powerful enough to save people's souls? See, the, the purpose is, do I trust God? And really where I'm getting at with this last one of trusting God with his power to save, is there are people today that say, well, we've, you know, we've got to change things up. People just won't come to a worship service. They're not going to step foot in the church building unless there are things that they're accustomed to. In fact, one person once wrote in the last few years and, and publicly stated, look, uh, if, if, if you go camping with friends or you have a, a get-together with friends and, and you start singing, someone's going to break out a guitar and they're going to start strumming their guitars. Well, it might just be me. I've, you know, I've not had a lot of friends where I've gone somewhere with them and said, hey, Ron, you want to start singing? And they go and break out a guitar. Now, now in college, I'll admit, there are times when guys would do that, but usually it was because they wanted to impress a, a young lady. Uh, right? But, but most of the time, you don't go over to someone's house and say, hey, Mike, you, want, you guys want to sing? Let, let me break out my bongos and we'll start singing, right? Uh, but there are folks that they say, look, that's how the world operates. But even if that's the case, if I trust God in his word, it's his word that saves, not how I sing or the way in which I sing. Sometimes people say, well, God doesn't really care about that, does he? I don't know. But I do know what he has told us. And I do know that I can trust him at what he says. And so, you know, there may be a day coming in which we're all called home. And God says, you know, that, that singing stuff, it, it, that really wasn't that big of a deal to me. He may very well say that. But I can know 100% that if he says, this is what I want you to do, I can please him by doing that. God tells us in Scripture we ought to seek what is pleasing to Him, not to myself. And so that really brings us to the idea of repentance. What is it that we are calling the world to do? Are we calling the, the world to repent and follow God and be 100% submissive to God? And so we tell people, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, not only for you, but also for your children to come and for your children's children. But what does it mean to repent? It means to change your mind. Or as he says, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians and in Acts chapter 26, he uses the different Greek word epistorepho, which means to change a course of action. Folks, when we're asking people to become Christians, we're asking them to change the way they live and the way that they change their minds, to be focused on God. And if I'm trying to get people into the door by saying, well, you don't need to completely give up the things of the world. Or we're going to try to do things the way the world does things in different settings. And that way we're going to trick them to come into church. Are you really teaching them to be 100% submissive to God and to Christ? And if, you're, if that's what we're doing, are we doing them a service or a disservice? So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, you know what, before you became a Christian, you indulged the desires of the flesh and of the mind. 
We're calling people to leave that behind. Are we practicing repentance to turning to God and following God in every way, every aspect of our lives? Or just pleasing ourselves? When we come to this question, why do we worship by singing and making melody in our hearts and not using the instruments? There's a number of reasons that we give. Number one, we have scriptural authority. That's what God has told us to do. And it's true, he may not care about it one way or the other, but I can't really know that. But what I can know is what he's told me to do. And so as we're a church family, that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to follow the Lord, by singing. Uh, and I can trust God. If I trust God with all my heart and lean not into my own understanding, as Solomon says in Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, that means I'm going to trust his word. I'm going to take his word at face value. And so it's a matter of trust. I don't have to worry about trying to be wise in my own understandings. I can follow Christ. I can follow God. And I can also follow the idea of repentance. What it is to seek God with all of my heart and put away my own desires, put away my own ideas, my own opinions, and choose to follow but there's one other thing, and that is God's purpose in our singing. God's purpose in our singing is not about celebrating who sings well and who doesn't. God's purpose in our singing is not to keep us alert and give us something to do in worship right before the boring sermon happens. The purpose of our singing in worship is not because it's another time for us to enjoy the style of music that we like. The purpose of our singing is to teach and admonish and encourage each other. You know what I've noticed in life? I've never gone down the road in my car and said, you know what, I think I'm going to start just reciting the words of the sermon. You know, I'm just going to get those, that, there's that one phrase that the preacher said, you know, last Sunday morning worship. And I, you know, I've got that phrase stuck in my head. I'm going to go through the day all day long. I've got that one phrase stuck in my head. No, nobody does that. But you know what you might catch yourself doing? Humming that song that you sang in church on Sunday morning. Just kind of reminding you. You know, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. And I'm looking forward to that day. Maybe I should behave a certain way today. Oh, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord? Oh, yeah, that's right. I need to be humble in the way that I interact with other folks. Love one another. To love is of God. Oh, yeah, I need to treat. I need to treat my brethren well. I need to treat my siblings well. We sing because we teach and admonish. As we gather together to worship the Lord each and every Sunday, the song service is a, a key part of our song service, a key part of our worship because that's what God wants us to do. We can teach and admonish each other by the songs that we sing. And as we do that, we give thanks to God. I'm going to ask Jay to come forward in just a second. Before we do, if there's anyone that has any need, if you need to repent and be baptized, uh, be buried with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, so that you can be freed from sin if you need to do that. You're welcome to come and do that. If you have other needs of the church, needs, uh, need for prayer, need for encouragement, if you have that need, you can come forward as you do that. But as we sing this song, as we sing the, the closing song, I hope that we will all sing loud 
and that we will all sing in a way to teach and admonish one another, making melody in our hearts and giving thanks to God. Jay, come lead us, please, as we sing these songs together. <laughs>